Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. An amazing guest. You know this is a show where I bring guests on to unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams. Today's guest is Erin Meyer. I first got to know Erin's work when she wrote an amazing book called The Culture Map. And she's got a new book out where she looks at high performance, high performance culture inside of companies. And you can apply this to your very own life. Her work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, New York Times. Again, that book, uh, The Culture Map, is so impactful for me in helping connect a bunch of dots. She was selected as the Thinkers 50, one of the 50 most influential business thinkers in the world. She is a professor at INSEAD, so smart, thoughtful, and this idea of getting inside, for example, where she goes deep into Netflix culture, which if any company has set a new paradigm, invented itself and reinvented itself, uh, it Netflix defines it. So I'm going to get out of the way and introduce you here to Aaron Meyer. Let's get into the show. Hey, this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live show is brought to you by Creative Live. And you're like, isn't that the platform that you uh, are the founder and CEO of? Yes, it's true. I am the founder of Creative Live. And they are the underwriter for the show, but it, it goes beyond that. This is not about a transaction. You know that I believe so deeply in the power of creativity to affect change, to get us unstuck, and to uh, unlock the, the things, the beliefs, the dreams that we have for this one precious life. And there is no better way of doing that than learning from the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, this is where the best teachers in the world teach photography, video, art, design, music, audio, business, and ultimately the ability to make a living and a life in any or all of those disciplines in a way that you want to. And the best way to do that, bar none, is through the creator patch, which is the subscription that we have unlocked now at Creative Live. It used to be like 100 bucks for a class, now for a hundred and change, you can unlock thousands of classes, tens of thousands of hours from the world's top creators. So where do you go to get the best price on that? That is creativelive.com slash creator pass, all one word. Best price is there. I wanted to say thank you in advance. If you already have the pass, cool. Give me a shout out. I will give you a high five on social. And if you don't, now is a great time to pick it up. Aaron, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Welcome to the show. So nice to be here with you, Chase. Well, I, I will confess, I have followed your work for some time. I read a book that you uh, authored some time ago uh, about culture, and I had just come out of living in Paris, France, where I think you're broadcasting from right now. I lived in Paris for a number of years, and uh, I was running a, a had historically been an independent creator myself. Creative Live now was expanding. We were taking on investment and and a global community. And I was really interested in how to start thinking about uh, working with other cultures. So your book uh, around culture and business was super important to me. And that made me, as soon as your most recent book, which we're here to talk about today, and all the concepts in there uh, around Netflix and work culture, I, I, I was on it immediately and I want to say, A, amazing job, and B, the opening question here is why in the heck did you choose to write a book about the culture of this amazing company? 
Yeah, well, so you're right. I study, I, I'm joining with you from Paris, just as you said, and I'm a professor at INSEAD, which is this business school outside of Paris. And my whole life work has been around national cultural differences, which is now I guess how we got to know each other. Right? Yes. Um, but I've always been kind of, um, let's say, uninterested in corporate cultures. I always found what companies said about their corporate cultures to be kind of boring and and not really very truthful. And then I came a, a several years ago across this this infamous or famous a Netflix culture deck. Uh, oh, which yeah. Some we of all your, saw it. <laughs> some of your readers have seen, right? And uh, it's been downloaded like 20 million times. And when I saw that, I was uh, I was shocked. So I had two reactions. One was that I really loved the honesty in those slides. Like here was a company who told the truth, right? But the other reaction I had was just confusion and maybe a little bit feeling a little startled. So uh, as your, your listeners might remember, I mean, one of the slides says at Netflix, adequate performance gets a generous severance. And um, I just didn't understand how that could work in a successful company. Because at, at INSEAD, we'd been focused on studying all about psychological safety in the workplace, right? And here was a company that didn't say, look, focus on making your employees feel safe, but if they don't perform, kick them out, right? And then you might remember there were other things in that deck, like um, our vacation policy at Netflix is take some, right? Mm -hmm. And our expense policy is behave in Netflix's best interest. And I thought that sounded interesting, but I didn't really understand how like in a real company, those things could actually work. So when I had the opportunity to start working with, with Reed Hastings, I was very interested uh, to try to figure out what was actually going on in the ground. Well, one of the things that um, I also took away from the book and what I have admired about Netflix for a long time and is super relevant to not just Creative Live and the company that I'm building, but specifically to the, because admittedly this podcast is is partly selfish, right? I'm, I'm having you on here to learn from you, but also the, the people who are listening and watching this concept of invention and reinvention, you know, especially for, for creators and entrepreneurs is so critical. So this idea of corporate culture and you know, whether you're a, an, an employer or a solopreneur, I think the idea of what culture and what things, what your values are as a huge and valuable lens through which you look at all your work. And then specifically this idea of reinvention and what Netflix has done at scale and what solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, creators have to do, you know, on an ongoing basis. Help me understand how those two things are related, culture and values and the ability to be nimble and continue to reinvent and, and, and innovate and stay out in front in your industry. Yeah. So that's the other reason that I was so interested in Netflix is, okay, obviously they're a very innovative company, but there are other very innovative companies. But what was interesting about Netflix is that um, they have, they are one company that has managed to like totally reinvent themselves in just uh, you know, less than a couple of decades, right? So your reader, your listeners remember, it wasn't very long ago that Netflix was a DVD by mail company, right? Yeah. Who you could remember forget the red envelope, the red, the red envelope. envelopes, right? <laughs> 
So, but imagine what kind of company that is. Like you have these warehouses with thousands and thousands of DVDs and you're like organizing them and putting them in the post office. And then of course the environment shifted, right? And Netflix reinvented themselves as a streaming company, right? Now they're streaming, uh, they were streaming old TV shows like reruns, right? Friends. <laughs> <And> old, right, <laughs> exactly. And old movies, right? And then of course the environment shifted and Netflix reinvented themselves this time as a, a media company competing with Disney to create your favorite shows, right? And that of course, that kind of flexibility, like being able to reinvent yourself again and again is extremely unusual. And what's very interesting is that Reed, who founded that company, believes that that's because of their corporate culture. So that's what I was, that's what I wanted to offer with this book. No rules, rules is this kind of like, how can we do that? Right. How can we also learn from what this company did to be uh, more flexible and innovative as we grow? Yeah. This idea of no rules, rules is, I mean, obviously the title of the book, which if you haven't read it, uh, if you're one of the handful of people who's listening or watching, you haven't, this is super uh, it's a, it's I would call it a critical and important read if you want to have a values driven life and or business yourself and have the benefits of that and in, in being able as Aaron just said to invent and reinvent so personal plug for the book check it it's in the it's in the background there behind uh, Aaron if you are watching and if you're listening it it's as red as the uh, the Netflix envelope it's unmissable um, so. Give us a little bit of insight, if you would. Let's go back to the beginning when you started studying them specifically. You know, presumably it was like an onion, right? You started peeling back, and what I know about the book, you started peeling back the layers and walk us through, you know, I guess a little bit maybe sequentially some of the things that you learned in that process and and with the specific goal of helping people understand that and being able to apply it to, to their lives. Yeah. And before we get started with kind of the step by step, I think I'll sure. just start by saying what my kind of like overall learning during the process Great. was. Beautiful. So my biggest learning was that most companies today and most of what we teach at business schools are kind of like these hangovers from the industrial era. And what I mean by that is that, of course, during the industrial era, we were obsessed with error prevention, consistency and replicability, which, of course, we need if we are like manufacturing automobiles. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But in today's world, there's, of course, a growing number of, of teams and organizations where our, our main goal is no longer error prevention. Right. Our main goal is now innovation or flexibility. And if we're going to be it, those are the opposite. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> uh, so if we're going to be focusing on innovation instead of error prevention, we need an entirely different set of paradigms. And so that's you know, that's kind of what, what got me into this. What I learned from the whole thing was you have to think about it all differently, Aaron. You have to start over. <laughs> well, before, again, before you dive into the sort of the, the um, some of the step-by-step, -step, I, I, it's important to comment there because this idea, I have written about it in my book, and there's an idea that, that as creators, so many sort of, for example, writers look at the blank page or um, founders of startups, you know, they need to put something out there and learn in a, in a lightweight um, lightweight incremental way so that they can drive innovation and test and learn and, and, and repeat. And 
it's like making mistakes is so critical to the creative process. Like the blank, there's nothing worse than a blank page. The only thing, if you ask a writer, like, oh, where, where do you struggle? Oh, I don't like the work that I do. Well, show me your worst work. Then they often have nothing to show. And, and so this idea of, of, I like to talk about it in terms of not, not error avoidance, but mistake recovery being in the, in the business of, testing and learning quickly. So whether you're an independent artist and you're looking at the blank page or, you know, haven't built the product that you've dreamed of, or as in, in the case of Netflix, you're doing this at scale in a company, it's, it, it's, I think it's a baseline requirement that we understand how important and novel that is also away from the factory, right? If we want to have a creative, innovative culture, then we need to learn in a creative and innovative environment. We need to be able to apply that without sort of fear of retribution and all of those things that that historically have been a part of no mistake culture. So that being said, I, I, I think it was really important and smart of you to say that up front, that that was you know, this key sort of takeaway. Um, but now we'll go back to the beginning, like start to peel the onion for us. Yeah. So I think I'll start by telling you a story that Reed told me the first time I interviewed him. So I conducted 200 interviews at Netflix before Reed and I wrote this book together. And the first time I interviewed him, he talked with me about his first company, which was this organization called Pure Software. And when he opened Pure Soft, it was just a small group of entrepreneurs, right, who were operating fast and loose. So they had no rules or process. They were just doing the best they could for the good of the company. But then that organization grew to hundreds of people and finally thousands of people. And as it grew, some people took advantage of the freedom that was allotted to them, right? So like there was this guy who used to fly every week from San Francisco to LA. And because there was no travel policy, he started flying first class, right? Why not? <laughs> uh, there was a woman named Charlotte who used to bring her dog to work every day because there were no rules against it. And the dog chewed a big hole in the carpet. And Reed and HR, they responded to this, let's say, bad behavior by putting in place like rules and process telling people what they could and couldn't do. Right. But then something else happened, which is that the really kind of mavericky creative employees, they left the company because they wanted to work in places that were more entrepreneurial, right, that they could like run free. And the company stopped innovating. And then the people who were really good at following the rules and process, they were they were promoted into senior management roles. Then the environment shifted from C++ to Java. But those people at the top were not the most flexible and the company was unable to adapt and Reed had to sell the company. So when he opened up Netflix, he had these kind of big lessons, which was, you know, freedom, employee freedom breeds innovation right and a process kills flexibility and those were the those were the two kind of like big ideas that uh that were underpinning the culture that he developed at Netflix mm -hmm. so keep going this is okay, okay. It, yeah no and honestly this is like it's so easy that the the folks that are sitting home watching and listening right now this idea of just there needs to be enough guidance to get everyone going in the right direction, but rigid processes often undermine the the end goal. Like just hold that in mind as Aaron keeps going down this path of what you learned. 
Yeah. And let me also say when I, when I talk about rules and process, I'm not just talking about like travel policies or what you can and can't do, but also things like uh, KPIs or management by objective. I mean, those are all things that we do in order to control our employees, uh, things that they don't do at Netflix. Right. Um, so Reed thought, okay, as, as with Netflix, um, he would try to create a really like free environment, but he also recognized that as the company grew, it was likely to descend into chaos if he didn't put in place process. So then he thought, well, at most companies, the really good employees, they don't need rules, right? The rules are there to deal with the ones who are kind of mediocre. So what if I tried to create an organization that was made up like entirely of top performers? Then I could have a company that had a lot more freedom, but I might still have some of those people who try to take advantage of the freedom. So what if I tried then to create a corporate culture of feedback where we were all giving one another a lot of feedback? And then if, you know, someone might say, hey, Jim, it's not okay to fly first class. That's not good for the company, right? And we would become accountable to one another, right? So if I had these two things, what they call talent density at Netflix, which means less employees, more talent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, candor then we could have lots of freedom, very little rules and process, even as the company grew. So that's kind of like the foundation of, let's say, the Netflix experiment, which I think a lot of companies can really learn from today. Wow. Talent density. Do you believe that the that, that this environment, I know you saw this or Reed saw it in his first company, but clearly you've looked at a bunch of other companies in your time at INSEAD. And for those of you who don't know, INSEAD is a renowned international uh, university. As Erin said, she's, there's a, is it up in uh, Fontainebleau? That's right. Is that, yeah. yeah. That's right. You got it. Uh, uh, I lived in Paris for a few years. Désolé, je ne parle pas bien français. <laughs> just just north of Rue de or uh, on Rue de Baron, just north of Place de Vosges there. Um, Wonderful. But INSEAD is a is a renowned university, and presumably you've studied all kinds of other uh, of, of other companies and cultures. Is yeah. is this idea that freedom plus talent is is that the alchemy that that provides innovation, or are there other ingredients besides those two? Well. I actually hadn't come across this this Netflix uh, experiment before, but I do think it's probably the one that will change. I mean, that idea, I think lots of companies are going to start moving towards it. But I would say, I mean, this idea of having like all, let's say, A players, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that makes people very suspicious, right? Uh, but there's actually a lot of research that shows that performance is contagious, right? So um, there was this great, uh, this great piece of research that was conducted by one of my colleagues at another business school, this guy, uh, William Phelps, and he invited four MBA students into his lab at a time. He gave them a 45 minute task and he, um, he rewarded them financially based on how well they, they performed. And unbeknownst to them, on 50% of the groups, there was an interloper. Uh, so the interloper was this, this actor named Nick. And he had been hired to act just like a regular MBA student, but to do some things that were a little bit undesirable. Like sometimes he would act a little bored, like put his feet up on the desk or text his mom. Right? Uh, sometimes he would act a little jerky, 
Like he might say things like, have you ever even attended a business school class before? Um, and what's really interesting is that you see in you know, study after study, Phelps proved that uh, the teams that had Nick on them performed at a 45% worse rate, even when the other three MBA students were like top of their class. And more interesting than that is that you can see that during these 45 minutes, the other MBA students, they start to act like Nick does, right? So like when he's acting bored, they start acting bored also. There's one videotape where you can see he's acting kind of bored and one of the other MBA students puts her heads down on the desk and says, when is this gonna be over, right? Um, and when he acts jerky, they start acting jerky too, not just to him, but to one another, right? Yeah. So um, I think most managers think an individual performance problem is an individual problem, right? Like that's between him and me, the manager. But actually, we know from a lot of research that an individual performance problem is not an individual problem. It's a systemic problem, which impacts the entire team and organization. So I think that that's why, I mean, of course, they say these edgy, provocative things at Netflix, like adequate performance gets a generous severance. But when you get rid of all of the fritzes and you move out all of those like lovable but ineffective or not so effective people... <laughs> then you really find that the energy and enthusiasm spirals up. So that's where that talent density really, really gives the, this kind of this power punch that we're seeing at Netflix. Taken uh, both from a company standing out in a marketplace and an individual standing out in their field, um, this idea of going against the grain has is always, you know, the phrase that I use is you can't stand out and fit in at the same time. And I'm, I'm curious to what degree this idea of excellence and counterculture or counter, uh, counter intuitivity, counter intuitiveness. I don't know what the right word is there. Um, did you see a relationship between those two things? I guess one is probably necessary, but not sufficient. I, I don't know, but help help me relate those two things because you go back to the beginning of our conversation. You said one thing that caught your eye was how different this was relative to their peers. And, you know, I remember when I said, well, I wanted to build Creative Live and have, you know, millions of students around the world learning, you know, creativity, entrepreneurship, innovation from the world's best. And people thought it was nuts. And there's a little bit of greatness in nuts. So right. is there a relationship between, like point one, is there a relationship between them? And then I've got a follow-up question. Okay. So um, what, what, I've, what I believe is that most companies, when they think about their corporate culture, they focus on absolute positives, like we value integrity or we value respect, right? That idea of, of saying you value respect, I think that's hysterical because like, what did they do? Did they get together as top leaders and say, should we value respect or disrespect? Right? Yeah. And then they decided, oh, we'll, we'll value respect, right? I mean, those words, are, there's no good credible option to those words. So when we say that those are our values, it doesn't really help our employees make the tough decisions on the ground. 
But when you look at, at, the, at the dilemmas, at the tensions that our employees are facing every day, like, you know, I've got this guy on my team and he works really hard and people really like him, but he's not an amazing performer and I want to have a top performing team. Should I fire him or not? Right. That's a real dilemma. And the dilemma there is between high performance and security, right? Do you want a culture of high performance or a culture of family, of security, right? Uh, so I think that that's where things get quite quite meaty with culture is that when we really start thinking about what are those dilemmas and then we dare to tell our employees, you know what? Here, we value high performance over security, right? And that's when people actually start taking, taking your instructions, right? Well, again, just to apply that to the individual or to the to the uh, any solopreneurs or artists out there. Like, do you value security? And ultimately, what that tends to like drag into mediocrity over risk taking. You know, you know when you put this book out, you know, ostensibly you're taking a risk because presumably it was very different than everything that your colleagues at INSEAD were writing about. And this, again, this concept of standing out and taking risks, what is it on the other side of comfort and security is where all the best stuff is in life. Is the, do you feel like these are, this is, this is a universal or is this isolated to Netflix and the culture you discovered or, 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 or can people apply this to their own life? Am I making a, a unfair leap? No, I think you're right. I think that, um, of course, um, the things that we're that that we're talking about today they are very challenging. But sometimes it's the more challenging things to do that are even against human nature that mm -hmm. will actually bring the rewards. And I think that actually firing employees that you like, I mean, that you have like a affection for, and we do have affection for our employees, right? Even the yeah. ones who are not top performers, we love them, right? Um, but we have to... We have to be clear about our corporate culture to get people to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. So I think actually that's quite interesting because you can say you value high performance, but if you don't kind of push your managers to take the, the tough decisions, then you're not going to find it actually taking place. So at Netflix, they have this mechanism that they call the keeper test, which sounds quite ominous. Um, but I actually believe that it's, it's irresponsible for a manager not to do do this. So the keeper test is basically that every six to 12 months that, you know, you as a manager or a leader in your organization, you just sit down by yourself. It's great for COVID. You sit down and you ask yourself the question, you know, if, um, if uh, Patty came to me or Jonathan came to me today and he told me that he was leaving the organization, how would I feel, right? If he said, boss, look, I quit, right? Would I be devastated? Would I say, oh no, Jonathan, don't leave, right? Would I, would I do everything I could to keep him in the organization? If so, then I know he's the right person for that job. But would I feel a little bit relieved? Would I think, oh, good, now I don't have to deal with that issue anymore? <laughs> or would I feel a little bit excited just thinking about who's out on the market that I could get for that job? And if so, then that is a clear signal that either you have to give feedback if you haven't given it yet, and if you have given the feedback and Jonathan hasn't been able to perform at the level level you would fight for, then you need to move him on. So, you know, however you feel about the adequate performance gets a generous severance, I think that's something we should all be doing, thinking about it at least. 
Ugh. It's when these hard truths get so, like, but that's real value. You know, that's part of the, the people often, um, there are personality types and, and whether your culture, like you talk about the difference between French culture and us culture and work that I experienced directly living there. There's so many differences, but when you think about what you like, those are the most important conversations to have sometimes even with ourselves, right? We can have them as managers or bosses, but that's the talk that we often, uh, need for ourselves. So, uh, uh, there's a couple of places, a couple of ways I want to take this now. Um, I'll just, I'll throw a dart and pick the one that I'm, that I'm most interested in. And there's another line, which I, in, in the book, which is, is I think says a lot, which is hard work is irrelevant. And you know, that is obviously another one of those zingers that we find in, in, you know, helping this, this concept to be, as you mentioned, the deck was downloaded 20 something million times because that's not how corporates talk. And certainly there's a, what I call hustle porn all over the internet about how hard we have to work as entrepreneurs to be at the best of week. And all that is true, but tell us what you mean by that and what Netflix means in a culture that that values excellence. Yeah, well that I mean that's just exactly the keeper test point which is that <laughs> you might feel like you shouldn't fire someone because she's working so hard. <laughs> uh, and you might feel like, you know, how can I how can I fire her? But I think that's when it really comes to this this image and one thing I think is very helpful at at Netflix, which I think is helpful for many like new, newer, let's say, uh, non-industrial era companies, is that uh, a company is not a family. Like if you want to be like an innovative, flexible company, then don't think about your organization as a family. Think about your organization as a professional sports team. Right. And if you're like, if you're running, I don't know, like a professional football team, right? Larry is such a nice wide receiver. No, no, said no one ever. Or he works really hard. So even though he's not out there getting the the scores that are doing the work we need, um, having the results we need him to, we're just going to keep him on the team. No, of course not. Of course not. And that doesn't mean that we're cruel. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to create an environment of collaboration and camaraderie. Of course we are. But we also know that our job as the leader is to make sure that we always have the right person in every spot. And that's what we do not for ourselves, but for the team, right? Because everyone on that team only wants to play with the best, right? So it's just a little bit of a paradigm shift. Yeah, no, but it's so true. And then there's a little, I don't know if irony is the right word, but um, it's curious that as I think of the highest performing teams within our company culture that I've played on or like this people end up bonding and connecting around high performance as that, that is a shared um, mutual respect. Those are shared values. Um, And I think of where there's, you've got a really nice person who's maybe, you know, they're working their butts off, but it's not cutting the mustard and others know it. And then that's sort of like an A player sitting next to a C player as you said in the, in the experiment with Nick, <laughs> like starts to go, huh, well, maybe, you know, I'm going to 
you know, take a nap under my desk or something. So I've, I've personally observed that. And I think for anyone who's ever, you know, I think we all have probably at this point, if you're listening to this, been a part of some team. And I encourage you to ask yourself, is this true? And this, this keeps coming back to me as a leader in our organization and someone who's fascinated by, by these concepts that you've written very, very eloquently about. So these, are there any other zingers that, I mean, we've talked about the one, you know, uh, adequate performance gets a nice severance and hard work is irrelevant. Are there any other zingers that you feel like always get people's attention? And again, the, I like these because they are counterintuitive and those tend to be um, things that have helped me the most in my journey. Well, I think we should move on now to talking about candor. I mean, a lot of a lot of organizations are kind of uh, newly newly obsessed with candor. That seems to be the new trend that we're all talking about feedback. Um, and at Netflix, I would say it's really their superpower, right? So <laughs> we could talk more about that. But oh my gosh, when you are there, like you think you're no candor. <laughs> but at Netflix, they're, they're really they really use feedback. They use, really use feedback as their um, as, as their strength. And they say things like, you know, if you have feedback that could help somebody in the organization and you don't give it, then you are being disloyal to the organization. And they also say, don't say about somebody something that you wouldn't say to their face, which is actually quite radical, right? <laughs> because at most companies, we, we spend a lot of time talking about people behind their backs, Right. Um, so at Netflix, they they're doing some, I think, very concrete and interesting things in order to get uh, get this feedback, this culture of, of feedback, this culture of candor out there. The first one is not very um, not very provocative, but very useful, which is that they frequently put candor on the agenda. Right. So um, I might come into the office. It's 10 a.m. I open up my calendar and it says, you know, 1030 feedback with Jane. Right. So I know when. Jane put that on my calendar. She's coming to give me some feedback and to ask her for some feedback, right? So that becomes a very, that's just very common. But then they also do other things at Netflix that I thought were quite shocking. So uh, one of them is something that they call these uh, 360, live 360 dinners. Um, so for a live 360 dinner, they get you get together over several hours, like over a meal, right? And um, I'm up first. So if I'm up first, uh, we go around the table and everybody at the table tells me what they feel I could do in order to improve my performance, right? And then we move on to the next person. <laughs> when I first heard about that, I just thought, I thought, what's the point, right? Like, why do you need to, to drag my weaknesses <laughs> across the entire team? Can't you tell me that in private, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I came to see it was such an interesting mechanism because actually if one person gives you feedback, you never really know, is it about him or about me, right? But yeah. when you're going around a group like that, you see, oh, well, this person thinks I, you know, I speak too loud, but then the next person disagrees with her, whereas there's something else that everyone thinks that I should be doing. And I often heard, I had one quote from an, an employee that I loved where he said, you know, when you go to these three. 60 dinners, you feel uncomfortable. You feel nervous about what's going to happen. But when you get started, you see it's going to be okay because everyone's trying to help you out. And it's actually the greatest developmental moment of your life. Uh, so I started doing those with my own team at INSEAD. And I can tell you now, now I think they're great. So I think everyone should consider the live 360 dinner. 
Wow. Can you go one level deeper there and say, how do you start something like that? Okay. You, you like, okay, the appetizer, the, you know, the, uh, undive salad has been served and Jane, I need to say something to you. I mean, what would it, I mean, how, get, get me into it. I need one level more detail here. Yeah. So, I mean, they have a whole lot of instructions about how, how you may or may not do these. They're not rules, right? But, um, but they always say at Netflix that when you give feedback, the four A's. So number one, your feedback should aim to assist. So I can't just give you feedback to like get frustration off my chest. Right? I have to be, my goal has to be to help you, right? It needs to be actionable. So you have to see exactly what you could do with my feedback. Then when you get the feedback, you need to show appreciation, right? To say thank you. That's the third A, right? And then the fourth A is that you don't have to follow it. So you can either accept or, or deny, right? Not deny it publicly, but either you can yeah. accept or decline, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that, you know, that kind of method, that kind of method is, is followed throughout. But I do think, I mean, we were talking about, about dilemmas earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies are saying to me these days, oh yeah, well, we're really trying to get our employees to be more candid, to give more feedback and get all of that kind of productivity boost that comes from it. But we just, we can't get people to do it, right? And that's because we've got a big dilemma when it comes to candor. And the, the dilemma is between candor and comfort, right? And we actually have a, a, a dilemma in our brain, which is between the frontal cortex and the amygdala, <laughs> So, uh, so the frontal cortex, that's the logical part of your brain. That part of your brain loves feedback. It wants, it wants, I, you know, you could give me some right now Chase, in front of everybody. Right? And I would think, oh, good. Now that'll help me. Right? Um, but the amygdala, that's your fear center, the most primitive part of your brain. The amygdala hates criticism because it feels uh, a worry that you will be rejected from the group, right? So if you give me negative feedback, then my, um, especially in front of others, my amygdala starts sending off an alarm, right? You're in danger. And that's why we all worry about giving feedback. You know, I don't want to give you feedback, Chase, because if I tell you something that I think you didn't do well, well, your amygdala might start screaming and then you're going to go into fight or flight, right? You're going to deny it or you're not going to want to talk to me anymore. Right? Uh, so we really have to get these mechanisms going and not just talk about candor, but really show people how to do it. It's would you would you liken it to a muscle like the more you use it the stronger you get the more resilient is that how you think about it or is there a different way well i think that's true and i think that also once you get the culture of it going people start to just get used to it i mean i had these things that happened to me when i was there and i'm not even an employee right? <laughs> like there was, I mean, there was this hey welcome to the party <laughs> sit down and punch you in the neck for a little while here. <laughs> I mean, there's this example from the first time, it was way before I started working on the on the book. I The first time I worked with them, I gave a presentation about national cultural differences in Cuba for their uh, for their leadership team. And um, I was in the stage in front of, I don't know, five or 600 people. And I'm always kind of in this like, like nervous mode when I'm giving, when I'm giving big keynotes. So my heart's kind of pounding. I'm kind of 
excited. And I came down from the stage when I gave the uh, the small groups in the audience something to talk about. And as I was walking around, there was one woman in the group who was speaking really animatedly. And she saw me and she beckoned me over. And she said, Erin, you know, I, I want to tell you, um, the way you're facilitating the discussion from stage, it's really undermining your point because you're talking about cultural diversity, but then you're taking volunteers and only the Americans are volunteering. I'm really concerned that this is going to ruin your presentation if you don't find a way to do it differently. Right? Never wow. before had someone given me critical feedback right in the middle of a keynote right in front of other participants right um so i you know my amygdala started screaming right and then i my then my frontal cortex said she is right erin you have 3 minutes find another method and i did and when i came back on stage i facilitated differently and it saved my presentation so it's i just think it's such a great example of the things we don't do in most organizations but if we do do them and the culture encourages it it really helps everybody a lot apply this to well i'll share that um one of my favorite business books is a book by ben horowitz who i see blurbed your book um and it's called the hard thing about hard things and as i um came back to lead the company after some time away. It was, you know, it was a lot of rebuilding and I uh, wanted to shift a few things. And, you know, what you don't, what you, the stuff you hear or that are is in most business books. And I will say this is also a, an extremely refreshing aspect in your book. This these counterintuitive things is you, you books say, if you start out with perfect thing A, and then you go to perfect thing B and C and D, then you're going to have, you're not going to have any problems. This is how to do it. This is the roadmap. And what your book and book like Ben's, the hard thing about hard things is, you know, chapters of the book were titled how to fire your best friend. What happens if you're, you run out of money? How do you talk to an investor that doesn't like you? What happens if you're, you know, like all of these things. And so I use this example as it's where the hardest stuff is that all the best or most valuable work can be done. And my, my question, if that's a statement that you either, you can either adopt it or shoot it down. But if, if we assume that just for a moment, would you say that that is a cornerstone to your work? Is it central to your work or is it something that is a nice to have, but is not a main point? Oh, I think it's just absolutely critical. And I love that book. I love Ben Horowitz's uh, book also, because it, it's really about, it's really practically how to get through these tough moments. And yeah. I think it's a great thing to bring up right now, because now we talked about a couple of the hard things, right? We talked about talent density. So about how to fire your best friend, if you like, <laughs> right? Yeah. How, to, how to use the keeper test to make sure that you've got the best people on your team. So that's hard. We talked about about uh, developing a, a culture of candor where people really give a lot of candid feedback to one another. Okay, that's hard, right? Um, but now the thing is, once you get the talent density and you get the candor, now you can move on to the best part which is to give your employees lots of freedom, right? I mean, if you've got the best the, the best employees and a lot of candor going on, now you can lead with context, not control, 
So um, that's what 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 they do at Netflix, and they've got this this great image, which is that at most companies, decision making is like a pyramid. Right. So with a pyramid, of course, you've got the CEO at the top. He's the chief decision maker and the lower level people at the bottom and the lower level people can make inexpensive, unimportant decisions. But for anything important, it has to get pushed up the pyramid. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the 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 image at netflix is that leadership is like a tree and with the tree you've got the um the the ceo who's down there in the dirt <laughs> the ceo is down there at the roots of the tree and she's setting the context for the organization this is our north star this is the direction we're running these are the things we need to keep in mind as we're as we're moving forward and then you've got the senior leaders who are at the lowest trunk trunks who are setting more context for their their departments but the real decision makers are the lower level employee uh, managers lower level managers who are kind of out there at the small branches and, and the leaves of the trees and those are the people who are making multi-million dollar decisions taking into account everything that's been all the context that's been set for them so i really believe that that's kind of like the the image of leadership for the future because of course with a pyramid we can only grow so fast right because we've got that that ceo who's the bottleneck but with a tree we can see what netflix has done right which is like grow at this crazy speed because the decision makers are dispersed i love it this makes me want you talked talking about like the process inside of netflix and if you map that onto what I think creativity is and, and what we teach at our company internally and what I think the platform stands for is this idea of, you know, constant innovation, lightweight. I'm wondering if we can take a second away from macro and Netflix and talk about your personal work, the process that you go through as a writer, as a as a researcher, as a professor gathering information, obviously all kinds of information. Just we talked about interviewing 200 people. What was your creative process in creating this book? Yeah, well, this book was a lot harder to write than my first book, The Culture Map, because my the Culture Map book, I'd been teaching that information for decades, and I already had like all of my examples when I sat down to write. So that was still challenging, but it was my first book. I was trying to figure out how to do it. But this book uh, was more challenging because I was trying to kind of put together the structure as I was going through the interviews. So uh, what was helpful was that people were really candid with me. <laughs> So there we saw the candor come out, right? I mean, I did these 200 interviews and people told me everything. But then I tried to kind of, I had to kind of figure out, okay, what's the culture and what's the individual? And yeah, I would say, let's just say it was a mess. <laughs> I mean, it, it took three years. It took three years of um, of kind of trying to figure it out, how to how to put it all together, all together in a package. I can't give you any advice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Luckily it worked out in the end. <laughs> Was it, are you a daily writer? Was this uh, fits and starts? Was it on the weekend? Was it continuous for that three years after you had done a lot of the research? Give, give us one level deeper. I can't write when I, when I have other things on my mind. So I would need to block off weeks. And what I would try to do is block off two weeks where I would write, I only write in the mornings because in the afternoon, my brain isn't, isn't good enough. <laughs> 
so in the mornings I would, you know, yeah, I send my kids off to school. They leave at 8:30. I would write from 8:30 till 12:30, and then in the afternoon I would try to kind of go back and do research or or uh, read what I'd written, um, and then I do it again the next day, right? And I do that for two weeks, and then I get kind of something messy, and then I come back and do it again later on. Well, let's apply your creative process then, because you are your own boss. This freedom, you know, this idea of of talent density, of candor, and then the freedom to do things that are in service of the things that you want and need to do. It's again, I keep making this drawing these parallels between the organization and there are lots of folks who listen to this show or watch the show that are leaders in, in other organizations or in their small, they're a smaller version in their own organizations. But there's also a lot of solopreneurs in this idea. It's almost like, um, you know, what, what is it that you value? And if you can say you value these things, candor and candor can be, you know, what are you saying to yourself? Like, what are the, the most important words in the world we say are the ones to ourselves? Like, are you honest with yourself? And I think that is, that's a, uh, you know, a critical deal. And then how you apply that, this is what, you know, in your writing or the application of this in, in the form of freedom to make decisions that support the trunk of the tree. It's critical it, to me. What what I think is, you talk about in the book, but we haven't talked about here is, um, truth, <laughs> honesty. You know, these are you know, honest feedback is the thing. But how in a world where two people could see things differently, or where you have the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, how do we reconcile? You mentioned the idea of being able to accept or reject the the feedback. But how do we reconcile the concept of, you know, objective truth when so much of what we're talking about is subjective? Talk to me about sort of truth within this system. Yeah, well, let me just go back to then something that I said at the beginning, which is that when I first saw that slide, adequate performance gets a generous severance, I couldn't figure out how that gelled with the idea of psychological safety in an organization. And what I've come to, to believe now is that it's, it's important in a company that people feel safe to voice their opinions and their insights, and they have to know that they can be candid, right? And that that candor, that candor is going to help move their career forward, not like block their career. But I don't think that psychological safety means that everyone has to feel comfy in their job. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you were asking me about my own process and I did find that as I was writing this book, it was kind of mimicking the types of experiences that Netflix employees have, which is that I had this huge opportunity to do to do something, something great, right? An opportunity I would never have again. And that's how Netflix employees feel. They're given huge amounts of freedom to make big decisions without needing to get approval from anybody, right? Um, and how does that make me feel? Well, I feel exhilarated. I feel adrenaline. Do I feel comfortable? Well, yeah. not, not really. Right? Uh, and often I would like wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh gosh, I have to go write that down, right? Because I was so like kind of driven by a, adrenaline. And maybe you could even say like fear. And that was one thing that came up a lot was like, do Netflix employees feel afraid? Well, I think whenever we're given huge opportunities to do big things, there is an element of feeling afraid that you're not going to be able to do it for yourself. 
right? Um, but, you know, I think that's okay, right? Like sometimes we're scared <laughs> and, and that's okay, right? That's part of the truth. Yeah. The other, yeah, that uh, goes back to this idea that that's where all the best stuff in life is. If you're, if you can get through the discomfort enough to look under the hood or under the bed or where under the, wherever you might have tucked the things that are scariest, if you can look into your amygdala, um, that, you know, that that's where all of the best stuff in life is. Um, again, I, I want to give a personal plug and then the, the the book is extraordinary. Congratulations again. And if you were uh if you didn't catch it the first couple of times I've mentioned it, it's called No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention, co-authored with Reed Hastings, the co-founder of of the company. Is there anything that we feel like you feel like we haven't talked about? I feel like I understand the arc um because I've studied your work and this book and this as a as a leadership idea, but I want to make sure that people who have been watching and listening uh, make sure that they walk away with everything that you've wanted to share them share with them today. Yeah, so I think I'll just uh, spend one more moment on talking about freedom, right? Because I think we were maybe a little bit theoretical there, but like at most, I'm just going to give you a list of the kinds of processes and rules that they have at most companies that they don't have at Netflix. And I actually think we can consider, do we really need those things, right? Mm -hmm. So right. at Netflix, there's, there's, as we said, no vacation policy, uh, no travel policy, no expense policy. So low-level employees decide for themselves. Their um, their maternity and paternity policy is act in or do what's best for you and your baby. Okay. Now those are symbols of freedom. They're not. I mean, those aren't the important ones. Those are just okay. We show our employees with symbols that we trust them to behave like adults, and in in return they behave like adults, right? So we give them freedom and then they behave responsibly, right? The, the cycle of freedom and responsibility. Uh, in addition at Netflix, as I started to say earlier, they have no KPIs, no management by objective and no annual bonuses. So these are all methods that we use at most companies to give our employees a little bit of freedom, but also kind of keep our, our hands firmly on their shoulder, right? <laughs> but if we really have the best employees, maybe we can let go of their shoulder and we can let give them the freedom, you know, to like, like run in the direction they think is best. And then, of course, there is no decision approvals. And that's really the big one, right? That's where we come back to the, the, the pyramid and the tree where the, the lower level managers are making all the big decisions. And I'm just going to end with one last example. So um, there was one of my favorite examples while I was doing the interviews was from this guy named Adam Del Deo, who does um, the documentary. He's the documentary guy. And he talked about watching this, um, this documentary, Icarus, at Sundance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he bid, um, I think it was $3 million for it, but he found out he was going to have to bid a lot more to get it. And apparently docs, documentaries didn't go for more than that at the time, so he didn't know what he should do. He ran into Ted Sarandos, who's now the co-CEO of Netflix, the, the top of content. And um, he, he said to Ted, you know, here's the deal. I spent, I bid $3 million. What do you think I should do? Right. And Ted said to him, well, you know, he said, um, is it the one? And, uh, you know, Adam was like, well, I don't, I don't know. Is, I don't know. I mean, is it your one, Ted? Right? And Ted said, well, look, I'm not going to make that decision for you. 
right? You're the doc guy. I pay you to make those decisions. But the question that you need to ask yourself is, is it the one, right? Is this going to be a, a super size me type of documentary? Is this going to be like a, an Oscar winner? If so, you should bid whatever you need in order to get the movie. But if it's not the one, don't pay more than $3 million, right? And then he left. And I just thought that was such a great example of leading with context, not control. Adam is the decision maker, not Ted. But Ted is there to set the context so his employees make decisions for the benefit of the company. And of course, as you may know, Icarus then won uh, Best Documentary at the Oscars. So great, great, satisfactory ending. This idea of context, if, if that's the story that you, you wanted to wrap with, I want to wrap my, my questions with you with this idea of context. To me, it's everything. Like helping people know what we talk about is it's not just here's the decision from your boss or your manager or your peer. It's the why, why I think this is the right decision. And did you find that in the research was critical to this culture? And if not, you know, what was more important? If so, like expand on how, why it is so critical. Yeah. So at Netflix, they say, but here's your last zinger. They say, don't seek to please your boss, seek to do what's best for the company. And that means that even if your boss is totally against an idea, if you've really thought it through and you've done your homework, you farmed for dissent and you socialized the idea, then you make the decision, even if your boss and your boss's boss doesn't think it's a good idea. And I think that's where we can really see the power of, of ideas throughout the organization leading to this kind of immense and, and, and speed of innovation. Uh, at an organization like like Netflix, but also maybe in your listeners' organizations. So uh, yeah, so we'll 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 end with that. And um, I I I wish everybody the best. I'm thinking about context and not control in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! Thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your experiences. Uh, I hope you all are safe over there in in Paris. And uh, really appreciate you being on the show. At last, is there any other, any coordinates where you'd steer people? We've mentioned the book a few times, but uh, where would you send people to know a little bit more about you and your work? Yep. So please um, join me on LinkedIn or go to my website at erinmeyer.com. Uh, and I look forward to hopefully seeing your listeners face-to-face -face next time. Amazing. Thanks so much for being on the show, signing off from here in Seattle, rainy Seattle and uh, after dark Paris. Uh, we bid you adieu until next time. Thanks so much again, Aaron, for being on the show. And we bid everyone a good day. Thanks, Chase. All right. Thanks for listening. Hey, before you go, I want you to know that I never, not for a millisecond, take it for granted that you have decided to spend some of your time and attention here on the show with yours truly, guest or no guest it's just an outright privilege i don't take it for granted for a second i want to say thank you in line with that this is a community and i would love if you've been moved or inspired or whatever to share this with anyone that is in your universe uh feel free to shout questions or and just even a shout out to to yours truly or the guest means the world i want to say thanks and have a good one